0: If you're studying for the CISSP, CCSP, or CISM certification, you'll probably get a lot of benefit from the Wanna Practice app at wannapractice.com. Hundreds of practice questions unavailable anywhere else, all in a simple interactive format which you can access through any device with a browser. Check out the show notes for a discount code for half off the regular price. Wanna practice. Success in certification is in your hands. And welcome to another episode of The Sensuous Sounds of InfoSec, where we discuss all things information, all things security, and all things information security. I'm Ben Maliso.
1: I'm Matt Snotty. Rafael Fiedler.
0: And you know, gentlemen, it's not every day that you get to talk to a multi-volume published author, an intellectual icon, a college professor but enough about me we have a very special guest this week um uh dr uh will riley um just uh, a prolific author great mind and you know what um will i want to give you an opportunity to go ahead and introduce yourself um please tell our three listeners who you are what you are what you do
2: yeah, glad to glad to be on the show, guys. I'm Will Riley or Wilfred Riley. I'm an associate professor of politics at Kentucky State University, and I'm the author of the books "Taboo" and "Hate Crime Hoax," along with the, some academic articles. I suspect four or five people have probably read. But uh, glad to glad to be here. Glad to be uh, one of the crew today.
0: Outstanding. Thank you so much. And and I got to tell you, usually uh, we don't have the full posse here. We're missing Joy Police, uh, one of our other regulars. But uh, Matt is also in Kentucky. He wanted to actually make a field trip to visit you so he could put a microphone in front of your face. I told him, let's not panic the guest right off the bat. Let's 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 keep this (laughs) at arm's length. I may make some um, jokes about eating possum. So you're just going to have to roll with that because it's an anti-Kentucky thing. Uh, Are you from Kentucky originally?
2: No, I'm from uh, the south side of Chicago, actually. Well, I was born there. I grew up in the nearby uh, east side of Aurora, but very urban, um, like metro Chicago. I mean, Um, so no. So
0: you talk talk normal then? Because I'm from Milwaukee, and the Midwest thing is much better than the the Kentucky well the
2: Midwest I think the Midwest is kind of the default American accent like what people think of when they think of talking like an American or like a TV news reader I mean the they're thinking of like a middle to upper middle class midwestern accent Kentucky doesn't have the full-on southern accent it it's kind of in between it's a little bit it's an Appalachian kind of Highland accent which I, I personally like but I don't have it now
0: do you affect it every now and then
2: Well, actually, uh, so I used to work on, uh, not really a trading floor, it was on high-end sales floor for Marcus Evans, kind of the British company known for its aggressive corporate culture, but very, very much like would-be, Wolf of Wall Street, like the target market for the company was CEOs, and you try to book them in to buy, you know, packages of future investments or, you know, to go to these business summits, and one of the things that we learned to do on the job, and this wasn't encouraged by the company, but was Perfectly mimic different accents, he could communicate with different people. And right? I'm not going to talk in like a North Indian accent or anything, but yeah, I could do an almost flawless Appalachian accent. Uh, I just, I don't have much reason to, I guess. I <laughs> okay. don't have any reason now you do. To talk. Now
0: you do, because Matt here also has roots in West Virginia. So he's going to grade your Appalachian. <laughs> Go
2: ahead. Give us your best. I don't, I don't think I'm going to do any like different. You can't do a hillbilly? Racial... Go
0: ahead. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. I
2: don't. Off.
0: Okay. I'm, I'm, all right. Not, fair not, enough. Not. Fair enough. That's an imposition. That's an imposition.
2: Yeah. Um That last thing I said was totally incoherent there, but anyway, yeah, I still got some of my accent game. I, I don't. I don't know how uh, perfect all of them are, but the Kentucky one is is um you know pleasant to my ear. It's just
0: not how I naturally talk. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we like your voice here. It's coming across well. Rofty, you can understand him, right?
1: Absolutely. No. Yeah. Okay. Good, good.
2: <laughs> I mean, I assume you would speak English. Otherwise, there wouldn't be much point to the podcast. I mean it's... Oh of
1: course. Oh, no, oh no, no, little no. do
0: you know.
2: Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, most Europeans obviously are fluent and you know for Africans as well, four or five different languages. We Americans really sometimes struggle with our own. So that's that's one of the you know
0: We are the, the children of the planet. Yes. There's there's no doubt. Um one of the th- well, we're also
2: the most powerful wealthy country in the
0: world so you know it's just a little of this little of that we're allowed to be spoiled yeah yeah it works um all right so one of the things I wanted to to you know, a big fan of your writing um and uh love taboo haven't had uh, a chance to read um uh the the uh hate crime hoax book yet but I'm really looking forward to that and I want to delve into that but one of the things I wanted to get your take on is In the security realm where we're at, we talk about the three pillars of information security being confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data and confidentiality. I don't think really plays much into this conversation, but integrity and availability are big things and integrity, meaning uh, has the data been modified? Does it have its original accuracy and substance to what it had previously? And I think in Taboo, you hit on this really, really well, is that the messaging has been massaged so much in a lot of the content that is delivered to us that all meaning has been lost and that what we interpret instead is a lack of reality. And I'd like to get your take on that and and kind get of your, get your views and espousing what you're saying.
2: Yeah, so I was actually a little blunter than that in Taboo. I mean, what I said is that most of the things that the average middle-class quote-unquote normie believes in the USA, or at very least many of them, are just bullshit. So the book sets out to look at 10 of the very widely covered stories in mass media at that time from Black Lives Matter to the alt-right, actually. And I look at whether widespread perceptions that exist throughout Kind of educated middle class society are accurate. So the 1st chapter of the book looks at whether the police are, in fact, killing black American men in large numbers. And what I find is that there's this incredible disconnect between perception and reality around the issue just to a remarkable, like orders of magnitude extent. So Skeptic Research Center, I mean, libertarian-leaning, but very respected, sort of small think tank, recently asked a bunch of people how many specifically unarmed, specifically black men, and I've said this in a couple other interviews, so I don't want to drone on about it, but how many are killed by the police in a typical year? And for liberals, like just the group of people that describe themselves as left to center, I don't even think this was the very liberal data, it was 34 to 35% of them said it was about 1,000 per Um, year. Yeah, per year. They said it was about a 1,000, just unarmed, just black, just males. Um, Another 14 to 15% said it was about 10,000. And then I think 8% said it was more than that. And to put that in context, I mean, in the USA, for, for the European panelists or panelists, I mean, we're fairly violent. We have about 20,000 murders a year. Blacks are overrepresented, but generally 40 to 60%. So the number of cop shootings that people thought happened in the black community was equivalent to the number of murders overall, or at least black murders overall. I'm, I'm kind of giving away the lead there, but I mean, so that was, that was the perceived number. And very prominent people said this. I mean, Ben Crump, who may be, for good or ill, the USA's best known lawyer, that guy who shows up every time someone gets shot by the police, uh, wrote a book called Open Season, The Legal Genocide of Colored People. Where, I mean, he was dropping these figures. The word tens of thousands appears in the book, although I don't think he directly linked that to police shootings. Uh, you had Cherno Biko, who was one of BLM's leading guys on the ground, come on primetime Fox News and say that, you know, every day, roughly, every 28 hours, he said, uh, a totally innocent, presumably unarmed Black man is quote-unquote murdered by the police. So you have these estimates between, you know, 342 and 10,000 of the number of people that are that are shot in this fashion, killed in this fashion. And when everyone's serious, from myself on the right to Sam Singleway on the left has looked at this, the number of police shootings in a typical year of unarmed black men is like 10. Last year, it was seven. I mean, someone like Sam or Rod Graham, who does lean left, would say, well, there are also killings in jails and things like this. But there's there's this huge dis- def- distinction between like seven and then 400 and then 10,000, And you find that this kind of misinformation is extraordinarily common throughout society. So that is kind of the deep theme of the book, the prevalence of bullshit, why it's concentrated in this clade of fairly intelligent people that are wired into MSNBC and Fox, CNN, you know, and how to how to fix that. And this is by no means just tied into these black issues or a few of these policing law enforcement issues. I mean, uh, it was Bill Maher of all people who publicized this data widely, but during the peak of the COVID pandemic, you know, COVID was real, it was serious, it was minimized a bit on the right, a lot of seniors died. But he asked people, or the, the researchers that he publicized asked people what they thought your risk of hospitalization and of death was if you contracted COVID-19 as just a normal, healthy taxpayer. And among those people who, again, identified on the left side of the fence, about 50% of them thought you had about a 50% chance of ICU care, inpatient hospital care if you got COVID-19, and it was like 1%, 2%, something like that. Like if you were under 70, you had a, a couple percent chance of going to the hospital, and then maybe you know the IFR was under 1%, but max a 1% chance of dying that doesn't mean know don't wear a mask before the vaccines came out or something but the level of risk people perceived was again 50 70 times what what it was in reality and this i tend to be a long talk or say this and shut up but this is an issue because people live their lives in kind of this self-built cage of fear this has been true since barry glasner wrote the culture of fear in 1999 white people are scared of black people black people are scared of white people there, there's incredible panic on the internet about just the weirdest things like pit bulls seem to be having a moment right now. I mean, you know, they are one of the more dangerous breeds of dog, but they're about 20, I think, dog fatalities per year. So people are just scared of all this shit that's not going to kill them while ignoring actual threats. I mean, I was on the highway today. People are going 110 miles an hour. I'm a fast driver myself, but I mean, that Kentucky on the major roads, it can get ridiculous. You know, everyone's 100 pounds overweight. I'm 50 pounds overweight myself, probably. So people are ignoring these real risks and are focusing on this crazy stuff, but it has real impacts. Like if you think that, of black men are murderers or whatever. I mean, some of the data you see on the Internet, there is actually a basis for that figure, at least. But if you really believe this and you operationalize it in your day-to-day life, you're going to be afraid a lot. And so the book looks at whether these fears make sense. Like, Chapter 2 is interracial crime.
0: You know, and, and that's, uh, thank you so much. That is an awesome answer. And, and that not only speaks to integrity of data, but it talks a lot about risk assessment. And what we talk about a lot, particularly in the classes I teach, when you're trying to prioritize risk or the controls for addressing risk, the things that we overlook, you know, hey, Put on your seatbelt. You know the most likely, like you said, the most likely place that most people in a modern society are going to die are in their car, and yet we focus on this other stuff, um, uh, and and that just baffles me. And it's it's one of the bane of our our jobs. I, I kind of see what you're talking about writ large, not only across risk and fear, but other postmodern concepts where it, it almost seems like there's a progressive influence or tendency to change reality um, by modifying the use of existing words or creating new terminology. Oh, yeah. Almost almost to purposefully muddle uh, what is accepted truth. Do you see that as, as kind of an influence or, and why? What is their end state and what is the end goal to someone who's trying to do that?
2: Well, the end goal is usually some kind of political or business or similar gain. I mean, there's a reason why you're doing what you're doing. But an example of this happened today with mass shootings, for example, and, you know, RIP to those lost in Nashville, so on down the line. It's terrible these things happen. There there are serious solutions from, I mean, bluntly, less guns on the left to more guns and good hands on the right. There's a real conversation to be had. But... Today, when I logged on to Twitter and Facebook, which is something I do in the morning, it's kind of like anti-meditation, which is something I do in, in the evening. But when I logged on, I started seeing these posts like Jeff Tiedrick, the political commentator, said, you know, it's the 28th of March and they've already been 38 mass shootings this month. And I cracked open my data and like using the normal FBI definition, another one, this one. So, what? and by the way, the way that happens, the way mass shooting redefinition happens, as all of you guys as security folks probably know, the traditional definition, which is shared from the FBI over to Mother Jones, is more than four people killed in a public gunfire incident. So there are different components. Someone has to be killed, not shot or shot at. It has to be a public gunfire incident the kind of terrifying thing we all honestly are a little afraid of, Columbine. It's not your wife getting angry and shooting the family revolver at you. But if you use some of these newer definitions, like more than three people shot, or you know bullets discharged this is the loosest i've seen it more than 4 persons you're going to get far more mass shootings so that's where you get into every town i believe they use three or more hit so on down the line so when tedrick says there are 40 mass shootings a month he's literally just saying there are 40 incidents where more than 2 people are shot at with a gun They don't have to die. They don't have to be fatally shot. So obviously, if you take something that's traditionally been used to refer to, again, Columbine-style killings, and you expand it to anyone shoots a gun, you're going to have more of them. Now, why would you make that point? Because, simply put, you want to ban guns or a certain variety of gun. You have a political position in the gun debate. So that, I mean, I think that's why this often happens. We see a lot of this with, by the way, apologies here but it seems like there's someone outside do you mind if i go outside for a minute and see if there's like a student issue
0: and please take the, we're just happy to have your time at all okay, matt will clean that. this up in post so don't Second worry an
2: unprofessional it. interruption from my <laughs> end all right i'm gonna duck out i'll literally be back in like a minute
3: all good well
0: Yeah. okay and nothing there are just some people
2: in the room next door yeah my okay. bad so all right now I'm, I'm here for the next like hour <laughs>
0: Um, I forgot where we left off, though. Unfortunately, me too. <laughs> yeah. Redef- Sorry, I think it was
2: sort of the redefinition of terms, why that's done, and so on. Yeah.
0: Okay. Absolutely. And and you were uh, and and you. I think that's a great point about um, gun control advocacy going to the extreme and trying to reframe everything as a lot more terrifying uh, than it possibly or probably should be to average people. Um and I think, you know, this is a a ripple effect in and an end-term state of something that's existed forever. The old journalistic, if it bleeds, it leads. I mean, that's okay. nothing new. There's sensationalism. But it seems like there's almost an a more concentrated effort by, you know, quasi-agents of chaos who are constantly trying to change our objective view of reality and 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 convince us that there is no grasp of any solid foundation that everything is a gray area um do you see that at all or, or do you Yeah, that I do recognize?
2: no I think it's a really good question I do see it I think it gets there are a couple of different things going on at once so one is just the growth in the amount of sensationalist media I mean when you say it bleeds it leads obviously the goal of any media outlet even the local newspaper is eyes on the page and we often forget this about the media i mean we see and i personally both these guys are pleasant enough if you meet them but you'll see don lemon or tucker carlson on television in a thousand dollar suit looking looking quite distinguished and there'll be this serious discussion of the issues of the day and you you tend to think that that what you're seeing there is the product but It's not, at least not in entirety. I mean, you're watching CNN or Fox for free. The actual purpose of the programming is not so much to inform you as it is to sell the Ford trucks and boner pills and so on that fill out a third of it. I mean, in an American hour of television, Europe's a bit better, but I mean, you're getting, what, now, 22, 23 minutes of ads? so that's the actual goal media is a business it's a for-profit business carlos slim owns the new york times jeff bezos owns the washington post people forget this they act like they're talking they're listening to fucking excuse me inscrutable oracles and in fact these are 210 thousand dollars of the two richest men in the world to some extent so i think as you get more that. And as kind of the rise new media as well, um, as you get the digital companies that are rise, that are trying to make content to compete with Disney and so on down the line. And this is across the board. I mean, the Young Turks have a whole TV studio going by this point. You're going to get more and more headlines that people will be kind of trained to pay attention to. I, I do think a second point, though, because obviously I'm, I'm a writer on the right or center right. Um, I think a second point is this sort of creeping postmodernism. Where the idea is that words really do define reality, and I've always found this to be a ridiculous idea since college. I mean, it probably is true that the language you use has some impact on your perception of the world, but things are only so constructed human terms and human numbers to describe things that objectively exist in reality. And this is true for almost anything you could think of from clitoris to forced fire. Like if someone says there's a truck swerving into your lane, your lack of perfect comprehension, the fact that they could be from Latin America and they could be referring to an SUV as a truck. That's not very relevant to the fact that you'd probably better swing right rapidly or you're going to die. So, anyway, that's just a personal problem with POMO. In political science, we call it constructivism with this whole set of ideologies. But I, I think the growth of this coming out of the university, I mean, the media leans something like 93% to the left, at least as versus specifically the right, uh, that, that's played a big role here that plays in the present tense a big role here because there is sort of an accepted idea that we can just change the meanings of things of critical words at any juncture i mean did any of you see cnn's piece on digital blackface yesterday
0: i i only saw the ramifications echoing throughout twitter that that and it's it's i do like the fact that most people responded with skepticism and hilarity as opposed to taking it seriously
2: Yeah, I I mean, people are posting Ice Cube memes under the original article and so on. But I mean, what CNN said essentially was that it's the actual point from Blake, who's not a not a dumb guy, although I think he's very wrong in this. But the argument is that it's basically impossible to measure racism because there are an endless number of changing things that could be considered racist. So in the article, he openly admits that traditional racism has dropped in many ways to almost zero. I mean, he doesn't go into the data, but the current rate of objection among both whites and blacks, excuse me, the interracial marriage is 6%. So you've got that. So why do we keep talking about racism? Why is there all this damn complaining? Well, he says, because there are other types of racism that we're only now beginning to discover, subtle, inscrutable kinds of racism. Is it racist when your white buddy posts a meme of RuPaul? are they making fun are are we now seeing a more insidious kind of white humor based on mo- mo- mocking black people and so on down the line now in reality since i think we're all quant this is testable i mean to some extent is there any correlation between being racist and using memes i would suspect of course not it's just you know you have you have to produce so many pieces every week or two if you're on contract but these ideas, basically, we have a lot of media, and there are a lot of Pomo people in it, and that leads to a lot of word redefinition. So a lot of the conversations that you're having on social media or even in a formal debate are at root entirely semantic. So someone will say the USA is a racist country, and I will say, well, not really. I mean, you know, whites and minorities could both improve things a little, but only 6% of people are racist. And someone will then say, well, what do you mean by racist? I mean, the classic definition of racist, as it appears in Webster's, you wouldn't work for, marry, serve under, someone of a different race. Well, that's not what I mean. And then you get back into, you know, what percentage of people are using memes or something. So, the POMO debater there is able to kind of wiggle out of something that would make sense to anyone. Or that would have made sense to anyone a couple of years ago by changing the verbal framework that's being used, I guess, kind of fumbling for a way to describe that. So, yeah, that that is becoming increasingly prevalent as as we have more media and as it swings more in that direction.
1: Yeah, maybe. And, and I, to- I,
0: I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Rofty.
1: Okay, maybe to sort of like two points you made, and it's fairly interesting to me because I recently read something about Austrians being sort of like racist towards Germans, you know, which is like, yeah, no, this is exactly the direction you're going at. Like, how how can you define that? And, and where does racism start? You know, it's it's making fun of, it's almost like. You Ben being racist against Kentuckians. I don't know if this this is something. But it's similar, you know, from a culture perspective and stuff like that. And where do you stop? This is just one of the things which is hilarious. But maybe to sort of like give a little bit of a of a pushback because you said in regards to language and does language actually change um, how we think about stuff? I I think if you just change the word in the same language, I I, I agree that there can that this can be um, sort of like actually not helping in, in a meaningful way <clears throat> because you're just replacing words and and going through them. But um for me, um learning different languages, just to clarify this, I think, and I don't think that this is controversy, but maybe it's where mm-hmm. this idea comes from of changing words, actually changing how you think, because if you learn a different language, this changes how we think about stuff. It opens up your like your, your vocabulary to new things. You can express yourself in different ways. And so Uh, especially uh, i think in europe and uh, where english is not the native language learning being like english watching stuff in english adds to your vocabulary and some stuff of course like we germans famously have very long words for things um and uh, but sometimes there is no word for a certain situation and i think the opposite way is true as well like uh, the English borrows stuff like Zeitgeist for a reason and so on, you know. Um, so having more languages, of course, having more vocabulary and being able to express yourself is a good thing. Um, but just changing and I, I, I just to sort of like lean, uh, come back to um, this, I think is why people are thinking that um, having a different word, having different uh, stuff is is helpful. But of course, like if you don't um, change the underlying um perception of the thing it it does not help
0: and and i'm totally in agreement that us using something like schadenfreude that's that's (laughs) That's ideal that's awesome we need that that helps us that helps us convey meaning and ideas i think what will and and please correct me if i'm wrong here and this is the concern i have as well especially as a writer is that if you change the existing fundamental underlying conception of what a word entails and has entailed for a hundred years then what you're doing is you're muddying conveyance of ideas and conception and 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 by doing that You're also kind of retroactively trying to change history because anyone going back to look at the record and see what occurred previously now is going to be applying a modern context to something that already happened and was commented on and was recorded. And and that can confuse somebody later, especially when somebody is trying to do something, you know, such as a medical history study, you know, public health surveys that could really mess up science and and day to day living and policy. Will, did I get that kind of right? Yeah, I
2: mean, I, well, I, don't, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer between you guys' positions, but I, I do think we're talking about two different things. So, like, in practice, most educated people who've been on a plane speak parts of several languages and use words from different languages fairly interchangeably. So Schadenfreude was the example I was going to give of something that we obviously borrowed from, I'm assuming, German. I don't know the exact Mittel-European gradations, but, like, that is an idea that did not exist in to the same extent with the same level of clarity in English or Spanish, at least as as I know those languages. So, and the same thing is true across the board. Like, I mean, I used the word agape, the Greek idea of sort of pure love the other day to describe how you would feel about certain family members. Again, English is a more practical, you know, at bar language, I couldn't think of anything equivalent. And there are dozens of examples. if a female friend asks if you wanna see a boudoir picture, that's a bit more of an invitation than if she says, hey, you wanna see how my bedroom looks? You know, after the renovation. So there, there obviously are tonal variations that unless you're an idiot, you can pick up from the words that we take from the romance languages and we place in English and so on. But I think what I'm talking about is something a bit simpler. It's within one language. And I you, see, you actually said this quite well, but it's within one language is changing the meaning of the word. Um, an example of this, we recently saw a surge in sexual assaults because the definition was just redefined so that men can now technically be sexually assaulted by women. Alcohol is a component of it. So that fingering, to put this crudely, can be considered a form of rape. You can agree or disagree with this. By the way, I don't have a strong position on it, the the definitions and the rape laws. It's not something I really research. But if someone says, during this current era of toxic masculinity, rapes have doubled, it's absolutely critical that you be able to say, well, no, they haven't. What happened is that we changed the definition so that the traditional form of Violent assault by men against women, which is, I think, what most people are worried about in this arena. Has that gone up? Has it gone down? Well, let's look at that. So, the idea that underlying every word, there is a reality that exists out in the actual world is very important and we can't lose sight of it. I mean, you can't every year change the definition of racism, hate crime, sexual assault, and say that these things have gone up or that they've gone down because you've rendered the word itself within the one linguistic framework meaningless. And I mean, so yeah, I, I think you, both your points are well taken, but it at a certain level, we're talking about something dumber than that. We're not adopting a French word that means a, a specific sort of hate and saying, well, in addition to the ordinary eight thousand hate crimes a year. There have been, you know, four thousand Chartreuses or whatever. I mean, they're just horrible, terrible incidents. They're bright colors in my mind. What we're just saying is, will we just change what hate crime means? And th- this happens all the time. I
0: mean, mm-hmm. that. that <laughs> At is- all. And that takes me to the next thing I want to talk about is, is your book on, on hate crimes and hate crime hoaxes mm. in recent years. And I, and I think just today I saw something about how uh, incidents of anti-Semitism in the U.S. have escalated uh, significantly. And I'm like, have they really? I, I find that dramatically difficult to believe. And, and I think back to just a few years ago, I think it was right before the pandemic, There was a wave of um, bomb threats targeted at Jewish facilities across the U.S., including, I think, three at the Milwaukee Jewish Community Center, the JCC, where I spent a lot of my time growing up trying to get laid. And um, it turned out that in terms of a hoax, first of all, there were no actual bombs. But second of all, it was evidently a brain-damaged Israeli teen who was phoning these things in um for whatever reason a crazy person has to do so. And that's almost become the norm. Whenever I see a thing about somebody posting a, a swastika or somebody hanging a noose from somewhere or, or you know, writing some racial epithets, I'm now immediately waiting for, and who's the person who did it who had something vested in doing so? Is is that am I right in seeing it that way, or have I become a nerd to the real racism and hatred and and so no forth.
2: i mean you're you're basically correct now again i always do one of these caveats when i talk about the findings and hate crime hopes like if someone does report a sexual assault or a mundane racial fight black guy goes to a cowboy bar there's a brawl after closing hours that's that's probably real but no you're absolutely right that of the more high profile kind of media incidents of racial conflict and it's not hard for anyone to list off 10. i mean juicy Smalier obviously comes to mind but also you know, Bubba Wallace, this guy who claimed that the Klan or whoever put nooses in his NASCAR garage. By the way, they rotate these garages every week or two. I mean, you'd have to be a damn well prepared racist. I mean, you'd have to have the full schedule of their events and so. But anyway, but I mean, going on from there, Covington Catholic, this alleged confrontation between whites and natives, or a Native American elder was bullied and almost beaten. Duke lacrosse, going back a little bit, but Air Force Academy, where there was allegedly near race war level conflict. The general came there to talk him down. It turned out to all just be nonsense made up by a disaffected cadet. You know, Yasmin Saeed, the torn hijab on the New York Six train, the pro football player that set his own business on fire. I mean, like, if you go through these big incidents, like, they just found the guy... Let's see. Now, I don't don't think I have the time to pull this up on Twitter, but they just found the guy who was responsible for the high profile string of Nazi attacks in New York, like swastikas written on these beautiful old synagogues and so on. It turned out to be a left wing black dude. Um, and, I mean, there, there's a lot of this game playing now, like, well, we don't know his motives. He could have hated Jews and ex-girlfriend. or But, I mean, the obvious probability is that this was either a joke or someone trying to intensify perceptions of racism in the city. I mean, that's 9 out of 10 as a betting man. And, yes, that, that does happen a lot. So, when you talk about something like an increase in anti-Semitic hate crimes, I mean, I think there'd be three questions there. First, how's that being measured? I mean, there has been an increase in anti-Semitic hate incidents, leafleting and so on, over the past couple of years from the papers I've read. But the large majority of those wouldn't qualify as crimes. The second question, which is more important because you still don't want people bullying Jews at any level, but the second question is who's doing this? Every time we've looked at, we've, we've unpacked in political science and psych, the recent attacks on Jews and Asians, you come to very politically incorrect conclusions. Uh, I wrote an article about this for commentary, uh, the Jewish Monthly. And I mean, when I did, I did Asian and Jewish attacks. And I think 60% of the perpetrators were black guys. And it seemed to be just part of a general rise in crime in cities. Um, the other people responsible were sort of urban, white, and Hispanic thugs. There was very little, I guess we're talking specifically about hate crime. So, I mean, those, those would be prompted by hate. But, okay.
1: One. So, so you know, what you're saying? Mass,
0: I'm sorry? So, so what you're saying is, is a lot of those incidents or a lot of those attacks weren't predicated on hatred of this demographic. It was target of opportunity. They're going after somebody's wallet or purse, and it's incidental as to who the victim is. Sort of. Well, I mean, I think there are a couple
2: different levels there. First of all, I'm not sure that hate crimes against Jews, as versus reported hate incidents against Jews have increased very dramatically. I do think there's been a slight increase. The second question would be who is responsible? And obviously, the the kind of group that's automatically targeted in this context in the USA is white conservative men, basically. I don't think that's what you find. So overall, oh, I guess this is my point. Overall crime against Asians and Jews was very diverse and was majority black when I looked at this. Uh, the hate crime incidents are not, that's not the case to the same extent. But I mean, when you look at the most extreme hate attacks, like that the in-home shoal that was attacked by the guy with the machete, again, those were sort of just diverse urban people that didn't like Jews. The majority of them were black. So let's increase who's responsible for it. I think those would be the two key questions there. But a third question that hate crime hoax raises is, is it real at all? So I mean, that that brings up the question of what a hoax is, which is something that very intelligent people like Barry Levin have actually raised in the context of the book. Like, No one denies that all these cases exist. Are they all classic form FBI hate crime hoaxes to the point where you could say the FBI is underreporting hate hoaxes or something? That That's an interesting academic debate. But in practice, I think what you can say when the Nazi in New York turns out to be a left-wing black dude with a backpack full of Krylon is, you know, the narrative collapsed. The story wasn't real. However, however you want to put it, and I tend to suspect that there are a very large number of incidents like that, especially as it involves Jews. Interestingly enough, but I mean, if you find a swastika drawn on a park bench, there are actually a number of possible explanations. One is that Nazis are afoot. Um, But another is that leftist activists, quite likely Jewish, are trying to make it seem as though Nazis are afoot. And I'm I'm not bashing the Jewish community here. Black guys are more likely to do this when the hoax involves black people. I mean, a third option would be that some fraternity drunk who could have been of whatever race did this just because it's a scary symbol. Instead of drawing a picture of a cock on a wall, he drew this awful thing that Hitler used to put on flags. So... You have to, and in many cases also, there's a fourth option, which is that nothing happened at all, where you find the tombstones in a Jewish or a black cemetery toppled, or you find a noose in a garage. I mean, in the latter case, one option is just that they have a pull rope in the side of our current climate. I don't think most people would suspect you'd found a crime there at all. So, I mean, the Jewish hate crime data, there is some increase in hate crime. Most of that tracks to an overall increase in crime. But then if you really want to unpack it, you have to look at these definitions. What is, yeah, what we're talking about now, what does crime currently mean? Who's responsible? Did they do a hoax check on this? There definitely is not a war in the streets against Jewish people waged by, say, the Proud Boys. I think you can say that.
0: You you don't see a massive increase in the uh, Aryan Brotherhood or the KKK. That's not a thing we should be worried about then.
2: Well, actually, uh, one of the things that I found, and I haven't I haven't broken this out to the point where I'd be comfortable publishing it in a journal or even someplace like commentary. But one of the things that I noticed looking through these hate hoaxes is that one of the clearest signs of a hoax is the use of these symbols from kind of the old wars between the races and religions that are absolutely non-relevant today, like the noose. So if someone was going, like there is an alt-right today. So if someone wrote, it, it, like, if I found a bunch of Pepe the Frog images drawn on walls on a college campus, and underneath it one of those slogans about let the the races will trade about who commits the most crime, like thirteen fifty one, I would say like, okay, that's probably a racist, like that's some bigot who's making this joke about black people. It's over the line. Go find the spray can guy. But if I if someone like dresses up in a Klan robe and walks around. In downtown Louisville or Frankfurt, much less Chicago, my assumption is going to be that that's a hoax, that there's no way that that actually happened, that there's an active chapter of the KKK in that city, that they're carrying out operations, that for that matter, I mean, I assume that'd be a lot of former military guys and so on, that they're doing that where they could be seen in their robes. No, what you're seeing is someone invoking the old symbol, like, look, even the Klan is still active right here in you know, Ohio, <laughs> fill in the blank. And every time I've looked at one of these Klan stories on a campus or something like that, it's it's fallen apart. At the University of Missouri, they had an entire situation, which part of which involved bias against Jews, allegedly. They, someone drew a swastika and human crap on the wall of a bathroom. Again, that that has never been photographed. There's no evidence it ever existed, whatever. But like, as part of this, all of these student organizations, um, African-American, Jewish-American, feminist, Started protesting and rallying and wailing in the streets as more, you know, non-incidents happened. And at one point, one guy, the student body president, went live on Twitter and said that the KKK had been spotted on campus with weapons, I believe, and that he was in direct liaison with the National Guard. And there were these robed fighters. Stay in your dorms. Watch the windows. Like this is Missouri, so like guys, black and white, were like packing up, had guns, and it turned out it was just all BS. Like, the National Guard actually commented on social media. It was like, when we conduct military operations, we don't liaise with the student body president. You know, (laughs) there's no sightings of the Ku Klux Klan on Columbia, downtown Columbia. So, anyway, that's one of the surest signs of a hoax. Like, the old image, you know, a Nazi flag you might see at the worst sort of right-wing event once. But, like, five Klansmen, two nooses. No, there's no chance. Nobody who knows how to test an AKK is running around at Oberlin, you know?
0: <laughs> All right. the um, uh, I had cut you off. There was something you wanted to ask or add? No? Okay. All right. So no back. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay. <clears throat> um, uh, so you are, uh, and I think this is safe to say, you're a big fan of Thomas Sowell. Big fan, yeah. Yeah. Like, like and you have started doing a, a series of uh uh analyzing some of his uh more popular works
2: yeah well pete turner and i the host of the break it down show which is another great um kind of social media slash vlog product to follow resource to follow but he and i are both tom soul fans so we decided to do this thing where he interviews me about you know each of the Kind of epic Thomas Sowell books like The Vision of the Anointed, Race and Culture and so on. And one of the things that people forget about Sowell is that he's been writing for a long time at a pretty high level, either, you know, academic content or like New York Times reviewed content. So he's got something like 65 books. Uh, And they cover the spectrum. I mean, he has a book called Late Talking Children, which is considered to be one of the best books about how to interact with a smart kid that develops late verbally. So, I mean, he really is sort of this polymath genius. Like, And I think he's associated with kind of a sardonic right-wing take on the intellectual class. But, I mean, like race and culture talks about all of these different controversial topics, race and IQ and so on. And probably the best overall summary of them that I've seen. So yeah, we're gonna introduce people to the Soul books. We're really gonna do this like once a week, I and mean, we're gonna start with Ethnic America, which is his first book that I'm familiar with, like 1977 or something. And no, his first book actually is Civil Rights Rhetoric or Reality, which is one of the bolder books I've read, where he basically said prior to the Civil Rights Act, and he supports the Civil Rights Act, is you know well-off black guy who's not a bigot. But prior to this, the same trajectories in black, and for that matter, Irish, Italian, Mexican, earnings, and the like that you saw following the Civil Rights Act had already begun. In fact, the great society, if you look at the effect of welfare programs and illegitimacy and so on, out of wedlock birth, if you prefer, slowed down most of that progress for blacks and for poor whites. So I mean, that's one of the first books to say that instead of talking morally about these issues, let's talk pragmatically about them. Like, is it the case that obvious large cultural differences have traditionally been one of the causes of bigotry or friction? Well, yes, he says, with considerable empirical evidence. Is it the case that groups advance more through law, kind of the Dubois approach, or through developing these basic, you could almost say, civilizational skills? And he does when he's talking about the Irish, um, which is kind of the Booker T approach. And he, again, demonstrates it's number two. So that, I guess, would be the first. But we're going to begin with uh, ethnic America and go on through a bunch of them. The vision of the anointed should be interesting. We're probably going to have a couple guests for that one. But, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Thomas Sowell fan. And I, I think Thomas Sowell... Thomas Sowell would – maybe he'd be a bit too popular to be considered, like, the best, but would he be easily viewed as a top 10 American intellectual if he wasn't associated with politics and specifically with the right? It's it's hard to think of someone who has a 60-book resume just ready to go, and he's still <laughs> writing.
0: I mean, like, his uh, charter school
2: just- came out last year.
0: Uh, You know, I've been a fan of his ever since I saw him, you know, way, way back as a kid in Free to Choose, Milton Milton Friedman's production and and his great hair. Um, There's there's that apocryphal story about uh, Soul um, uh, and it showed up in a a recent Netflix documentary. Uh, Another uh, 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 black academic said to him, hey, both of us can't get on a plane at the same time. Um, (laughs) Yeah.
2: yeah, that's Have Walter you... Williams. Like the only two black conservative quants would be killed. Yeah, that was a running <laughs> joke between those two guys.
0: <laughs> oh, so there there is some veracity to that.
2: Yeah, it's a true story. Uh So Walter Williams, obviously, I assume all you guys are also familiar, but just rock solid economist. I don't know if I'd put him in exactly the same class as Soul or Free. Nobody's in no.
0: Soul's class. I mean, I'm sorry. Right. There's just yeah.
2: Well, I mean, Friedman might be, but I mean, just like, there there are very few people that are at that level, but I mean, just an excellent researcher in the field and very funny guy. Walter Williams is the guy who said that. And it was just like, well, I mean, right now, there are only two good black conservative Southern quants in the whole country. So I never want to see you on a plane with me, Tom. And it was just, it was funny.
0: It was a one-off line, but it was a good one. Outstanding. Um, Now, uh, you are Wildebeest 360 or at, uh, on Twitter?
2: On Twitter, yeah, I mean, uh I yeah, the my Twitter handle is at will w i l underscore duh underscore beast b e a s t six three zero, which is just, just kind of a joke. Like I used to use Will to Beast as a freestyle rap name sometimes. I'm from the six three zero, which is the area code. It's working class suburban Chicago. So I mean, Chicago is a mega city. I mean, it's I mean smaller than New York, but in terms of actual metro area, at least as big as LA. Where do you find coming. the
0: time? You are on Twitter always. You reply to everything. You are you are prolific and and ubiquitous. How do you do that?
2: Well, I mean, I, I actually, I mean, I write a great deal also, but Twitter is just, it's something that I usually have open in the background on my computer. And I do about, I actually only do about 20 tweets a day. Like, I'm far less prolific than a lot of the people that are sort of online media pundit types. like I'm thinking of like Jesse Kelly debating people or someone on the Chank Uyghur on the left. I mean, but no, I mean, I, I do about 20, which is, I suppose, a lot, but I also pre-schedule some of them so that if I'm just like goofing around in a meeting, I can send five of them and then have like that response of all these people, you know, liking, arguing, so on as as kind of a time filler.
0: All right, uh, Matt. You have been strangely silent when being faced with a polysyllabic Kentuckian. Is there anything you want to offer or ask?
3: Well, first off, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Ben, to uh, contribute to this conversation <laughs> in, a, in a very small way. Um, yeah, the I guess the main thing that I'm uh, and I'm so out of my depth here because I'm not a polisai person. I'm not a political person in in any way. Um, uh, it, in fact, to me, it, it's, it's frustrating, um, being kind of put in the middle or, 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 being told, oh, if you, um, if you say, or if you do this, then this means that your political leanings are this or that. And, and my response is always "No, that that has no bearing on, on, on any of that, because I don't like to, 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 to uh, I guess, cage myself in, in, in a certain type of thinking. But the big thing, especially getting back to what we were first talking about with the way that the the, the language has changed over time and things mean things different. One of the first things that I thought it was the old term computer um, and like the uh, back in the NASA days. NASA had okay. thousands of computers, but it was actually being used as a term to describe women who were doing calculations with regards to rockets and, and stuff like that. But now computers have become uh, meaning you know the devices that we have. Um. Where does this all go, though, with regards to language and the changing nature of language? Language naturally evolves over time to mean certain things and different things. Does it all ever come back? What? what how, how do we get the media and uh, uh, the, the divisiveness to come back to where it's like a normal, nice middle ground? Is there, is there a solution?
2: Yeah, well, I, I think that there are a couple different things there. So one of the things language can change naturally, or it can be changed artificially. And I think that this is one of the things we were talking about earlier during kind of the linguistic portion of the conversation. When uh, an English speaker, an American or an Irishman adopts a German or a French word, that's generally natural change. Uh, The French do some things better than our society without getting into, you know, banter on either side about what those might be. So that that's a natural process. I think what you're seeing with a lot of what's called wokeness is an entirely artificial process and one that's kind of irritating. I mean, where you often see activist scholars, or journalists attempt to sort of manipulate the conversation. And again, I don't necessarily think those of us on the right would do a better, more ethical job if we controlled 93% of the media, just to put that out there. But I mean, the reality, though, is that, like, the term latinx comes to mind, just to pick the low-hanging fruit. Um, The Times and other major publications in recent years have decided it's awkward that Spanish is a totally gendered language, and I'm sure a couple of you guys speak Spanish, but if, if you don't, like, every word ends in O or A, like, el libro is the book because traditionally reading's been considered something of a masculine activity. La novia, you know, this is my girlfriend, someone close to me, that's a feminine ending for, it implies sweetness, softness, whatever. This outrages a lot of people on the contemporary left. So the idea has been that we should end not just Spanish words, but Spanish, like the title for the Latino population with a neutral signifier like an X. So it's Latin X or Latinx. And, There's been an attempt for years to push this term. Per all the data I've seen, about 2% of Hispanics tolerate it. Almost none of them like it. It's literally like 2 to 98 is your, your perspective on Latinx. It's like 2% okay. 45% don't care. 50% utterly reject. So. I think with a lot of this stuff you see that more a push effect than a pull effect in economic terms. Uh, The transgender movement, and this is one where I think there's there's some cruelty sometimes and people are, there's a lot of hostile debate going back and forth. But at some level, the simple reality is that you can't change your sex. How we decide to treat people's preferred presentation of the self is an interesting urbane debate. But it's a debate that has no bearing on most of the things where we're currently having this conversation, like prison, um, athletic competition, dating. All those things have always been sexually divided, i.e. if a male says, honestly enough, I feel I have a brain that is more characteristic of women and I like to present myself as a woman, but I'm also a six foot four guy with a penis. Uh, most of the people that are in that person's dating pool are not going to be heterosexual men. So again, we're we're seeing the advancement of. Well, I guess the point is we're seeing the advancement of a very niche perspective through activist consensus. Like one of the things I did recently, that'll probably become an article was do these large scale polls on sites like twitter but with like actual links to like survey monkey reasonably sophisticated questions obviously you know an anonymous better version of this would be an improvement but i just asked people not questions like do you support gender affirmation sometimes but just practically like do you think some women have 9 inch penises um or do you think I am oppressed? Because one of the arguments is that, you know, if you're white, your upper middle class, black and Asian friends are oppressed. And you were seeing in every one of these cases the same 98 to 2 rejection that you saw of Latinx. Like when I posted a, do some women have nine inch penises?" people are just like, bro, take this down. Like what? I obviously, no, the question is so stupid that no one could believe it. But you saw this interesting dichotomy where activists, because I'm now at the point where I have about 100,000 social media followers, so activists were responding under the post and saying, well, obviously some do, like some boys have vaginas and some girls have penises, and that's okay. But in the actual Twitter poll and in the actual monkey link, you just kept seeing the numbers increase and increase and increase. People were like, no. That's absolutely not true. So I think, actually, I don't even know if there was a link on that one. It might've just been like 14,000 votes just on the poll. But so I think that that is something you see a lot of getting to the point driven language where very few people, in fact, believe something. Like very few people believe that racism is a term that would be appropriate to use to describe my next post-tenure review. Very few people believe that Female means anyone that identifies as a woman. You know, very few people believe that the gendered ending should be taken out of Spanish over the course of a three-year review of the whole language. Um, So when people say these things, they're attempting to manipulate the conversation. I don't know if that's exactly an answer. Oh, your question was how do you stop that? Well, it's going to be very difficult. This is, I'm not quote unquote black pilled, the online term for depressed all the time, because you think that the West is going to lose in the civilizational wars. Uh, I frankly don't think it's that hard to get your voice heard as, you know, conservative or someone on the center. I'm talking on a good sized podcast now. I'm going to, I mean, I have 100,000 people. I just said, listen to the nonsense I say, you know, but I do think that when you look at these core mainstream institutions, The two options are going to be either building alternative institutions or a decades-long process of kind of taking them back. I mean, when you look at academia, what's happened is genuinely pretty bizarre. I mean, I would expect most academic faculties globally to lean left in the same way most militaries lean right. But in the USA, academia, especially law school, social sciences, was always the domain of these very free speech classical liberals. And in the past 20, 30 years, that's kind of changed in that activists from the 80s and 90s radical movements got hired, even back to the 60s radical movement. And they started implementing policies that would make it impossible to hire anyone but an activist, if that makes sense. So, like, I got in the year before the mandatory diversity and gender and so on statements as, you know, an ambitious young faculty member. Now, honestly, would I just have filled them out with a bunch of lies and then gotten hired and done exactly what I did? You know, probably, you know, there, there are a few ultimate moral rules, but, like, don't bullshit your boss for $100,000 is not one of them or whatever the fee <laughs> might be at each university. But, I mean... Many, many people, though, have a, if anything, better attitude, wouldn't do that. And it is very difficult for them to find any niche anywhere. And so you get these crazy findings. Like, I think it was the Rollins College study a couple of years ago found that 0% of sociologists are Republicans. Now, that's a statistical finding. I'm sure they're like six but it was like 59% are identified Democrats, and then the rest were like Greens, Communists, Socialists, whatever. And then you had between zero and 1% that were conservatives. And this is problematic because the USA is a center-right country, so there are more Republicans than there are Democrats. So how do you, that is why the language is being driven. It's being driven from the political left right now. Just as I would suspect in the military in the past has been driven from the right, you know, U.S. has never lost a war and all that, that sort of thing. How do you stop it? I mean, I think alternative institutions that challenge the current institutions to perform, that definitely is a path that has a lot of potential. Uh, I'm a member. I'm an executive, I suppose, a member of the advisory board level for a couple of groups, uh, FAIR, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, 1776 Unites, which I usually describe as the black business and social science community's response to the 1619 Project. Uh, I'm not at that level, but I've been involved in some things with FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, used to be now its expression. And the thing about those groups is that they're all absolutely non radical. Uh, FAIR, for example, is substantially to the left of me overall. What they're intended to be as large scale, you know, million dollar raising replacements for groups like the ACLU that are just no longer doing their job. And I, I think they're all succeeding in that. I think they're all becoming extremely prominent. You're seeing, Times coverage, you're seeing lawsuits brought to the Supreme Court. So I think that's one thing that'll happen. Like if an institution stops working, people in a reasonably capitalist market system have the option of just going to another institution with their charitable dollars or as an employee or or something like that. Um, I also think that there's a place for kind of top-down revision of a lot of this stuff. Like, one of my buddies is Chris Rufo, who just, frankly, is a right-wing activist. Like, he would openly use that label. He's a political fighter. But he's been appointed by the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, to oversee some of their colleges. Like, he's monitoring new colleges, doing some work at Florida State. And the thing about this is that Chris is actually a pretty fair guy, so he's not... Like, he's not trying to institute a requirement that you have to say the Pledge of Allegiance to get hired. The requirement is just that you drop the diversity statements and get rid of the DEI department and so on. So I I think that as long as governors and the like kind of keep it right down the middle like that, you you don't have to be a Republican to, you know, hold state office in Wyoming or something. You would see that easily flipping and going the other way. But as long as there's a right down the middle approach to like we're going to get rid of any kind of loyalty oaths, we're going to get rid of any kind of what what amount to partisan membership requirements, gender statements. You know, we're going to have an outside member on hiring panels. I think that's definitely a technique that should be used in academia and the arts and so on, because the reality is that all that stuff is totally funded by the ordinary taxpayer. So if you have a system where in the state universities. 10% or whatever it is of people are majoring in the various studies whiteness and gender and black and so on and are leaving essentially unemployable and very angry it seems logical that the state government would take action and say well no you you can't do this and i mean you know their entire countries hungary some of the rising african powers uh south korea i believe is thinking about this that have simply banned some of these majors where they're saying, you know, you can call us fascist if you want, but there's we're seeing no return on this. You know, we're seeing the public fisc paying off a lot of this debt down the road. So here, you know, if you want to leave Hungary or Korea and go to the USA and major in bullshit you can, but we are going to put a put a limit on that. So I I do think there's a place for that within reason, but alternative institutions are going to are going to have to play a big role for a while.
0: Um, I know we've been taking a lot of your time and, and, and I absolutely love this again. I'm really glad you joined us. Uh, I, I'd like to add Institute of justice to that list of uh, oh, ACLU yeah. alternatives that have been doing some really good lawsuits and getting some Supreme court traction. Um, did you say, which field was it where there's 0 right wingers? Was that social? sociology. sociology.
2: No, it's, yeah, it's mainstream sociology. Like this is, it's important to realize, and this is, if, if I can do 1 segue here. It's important to realize how absolutely mainstream all this stuff is. I mean, so another guy I know and am friendly with is James Lindsay, and he also is known for talking a lot of trash on Twitter, having some fun. But what James Lindsay actually did that made him fairly famous, along with Peter Boghossian, who's a great guy, and Helen Pluckrose, was write this series of totally fake papers. Never forget this and submit them to some of the country's best journals, like the, the dog,
0: dog Park sexual yeah. assault one, and uh, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, did, they didn't get to like the American Political Science Review, but I mean, this was, uh, what, Hypatia? I think Euphoria might be something different, but I mean, the Journal of Fat Studies, now that's a very niche field, but that is its flagship journal. I mean, so just like all of these like seven or eight major no, actually, sorry, Euphoria is not one of them that published this. I think that's something that just began. But anyway, Hypatia, Fat Studies, you can look up the whole list, but they're things you would find in a library. And they submitted these completely BS paper. In fact, last note there, Euphoria is a journal on sort of the center right that I have been asked to write for. So sorry, I just confused the names there. Didn't want didn't to libel anyone. But anyway, the whole point of all this is that they wrote just these fake-ass papers. Like, one was about whether dog park interactions uphold toxic masculinity. So are people more likely to react when their dog is humped by a male dog if the dog is also male? And, I mean, there are just these crazy lines in the paper. Like, as a human, I can't fully judge what would be offensive to a dog is one of them. I believe at one point someone wrote, uh, it's debatable whether the doggy position is feminist for animals. Um, you know, just th- all of this crazy stuff, it just it, intentionally the most nonsensical thing imaginable. Another paper, if you don't think that one's wild enough, was a chapter of mind comp translated into feminist style writing. So, like, you just replace like the Jew with the penis or something like that. Um. And this is not exaggerated at all. Uh, Another one was an argument for fat bodybuilding. I think that's the one that went into fat studies. But they argued that you should have a massively obese category in bodybuilding competitions. So this is, all of this went into quite serious scientific fields. And And they got them published. They got them
0: peer-reviewed
2: and published. Yes. Out of these papers, I think they wrote nine papers and they published seven. I'm sure when the video goes live someone will correct it might be eight they published but it was this wasn't widespread rejection they began with one journal that serious people have published in but that does have a publication fee which is frowned on and so you could argue that one but that the first paper was the conceptual penis where they asked whether the penis is real or merely a figment of the imagination of men in an anti-feminist society this paper's been cited like 20 times by the way like if you go on academia you'll see like feminists citing it but then they went into these serious papers dog humping fat bodybuilding you know uh, blah 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 and again critics online might say five percent of this is inaccurate but just look up the papers they got almost all of them published. so there are a couple things there one that's why we need alternative institutions and two That is the situation in very mainstream fields like sociology. We're not talking about, like, the niche edge of the academy here. Um, Yeah, I think that's the somewhat depressing observation there. Another comment, though, this is something that has to be kept in mind when people say, listen to the experts. Like, there are things like flying planes where you really should listen to the experts. There are other things like COVID where you understand it's become politicized, but still the basic idea of get your first vaccination. Okay, that that's probably true. And then there's a third category of things where the experts themselves are just activists that probably have a lower IQ than you do. So it's important to keep that in mind. Like when someone says you should listen to the experts on say gender, like, do you mean the experts that legitimately debated the question is doggy style sex feminist for animals? Like, I mean, is the, are these the experts, the the fat bodybuilders? Like, I mean, if you're telling me I need an expert in how obesity is healthy, that was the Journal of Fat Studies. Like, they have doctors on the board. So you you can kind of come with some questions. Like, are you guys aware of this paper you published, which is your most downloaded paper? And I think it's going to be kind of hard for the experts to come back from some of that. And you keep. Isn't
0: that that good, though? I mean, one of the things that I found really sad over the past 10 or 20 years is the loss of logic and reason and objectivity. Um, I understand wanting to accomplish big picture things, but on the flip side, the whole concept that we used to have a category of fallacy called um, appeal to authority has been dismissed. And instead, you're seeing a massive push towards trust our experts, top men. Have decided that the Ark of the Covenant should go into the warehouse. You know,
2: yeah. No, I mean that's something that's very interesting. Um, and again, I'm thinking through this this conversation. I, I don't know if in, is is doggy position feminist for animals. Does, is that in like the final draft of the anyway? Uh, the papers are as absurd as they sound. Everyone should go out and check. Like the SoCal 2, that's the name of the hoax. There's also a SoCal 3, by the way, where someone, I think that was the paper where someone jokingly argued that colleges lean too far to the right. And that became one of the, again, the more cited papers of a period of time until everyone just realized, oh, it's a joke. So, I mean, if you go through all the SoCal hoaxes, you'll, um, you'll see just amazing stuff and it'll really shake you foundationally when it comes to to who these people are but so what you just said though i think is very important and it's something that really surprised me recently and it really surprised me with a couple of things specifically feminism and covid because what people were really saying for the past three years around the gender issue and the disease issue is how can you not trust the government's experts And it's such an odd question for anyone. Like, I'm part Native American. I mean, I can tell you a whole lot of reasons you don't don't want to. Tuskegee Institute and so on. But I mean, like, you know, but it's, it's an odd question for anyone, but it's an incredibly odd question for, like, a liberal riot girl. So when people were saying things like, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, the CIA, and Pfizer have all confirmed that this is the truth. And that's a quote, like, or very similar to something I've seen very often. How could you disbelieve them? It's almost like you're blinking. You're watching birds flutter around your head in the cartoons. Like the Chinese Communist Party, the CIA, and Pfizer? I couldn't
0: think of three less trustworthy entities on Earth. You know, so... Was Kissinger on board, too? I mean, you know... Well, Kissinger had a... Yeah, no, what on I'm court. saying is, I mean, you know, let's let's pick some of the most outlandish trust trust issues that we can you know i mean like george bush henry kissinger robert reich like all these people
2: were talking during this period it's like i know who you are you know so anywho i i think that the shift of the conventional formerly in the streets center left toward blind obedience to the government um Head nodding along to the wildest stuff, like Al Gore environmental predictions and Paul Ehrlich's quantitative models. It's one of the weirder things I've ever seen. Uh, I think that the reason for it though is quite simple and understandable. Like that group is now in power. Like mm-hmm. if you look at who holds most power positions currently, it really is the sort of diverse center-left, you know, academic through business a lot of the minority activist groups in there as well block so the right i mean there's there's an occasional president but does not control academia doesn't control mass media doesn't control you know hollywood and entertainment production and interestingly enough with the rise of tech doesn't control business like elon musk is the only major tech ceo that i would describe as being even on the center which is why he's regularly described as a ravening Nazi, by the way. So as you get into power, it becomes more appealing, more attractive, I suppose, to enforce the toolkit of power. And that's how you get these people that are among the top 1,000 or so. I mean, you, you jokingly said top men from you know Indiana Jones, but among the top 1,000 or so people in the world. I mean, the head of the NAACP, the secretary general of the UN, Meghan Markle is a princess. You have these people whining about oppression while ruling the world, and it really is quite bizarre unless you understand, well, that's the result of this American and European political dynamic that brought this bloc to power. Um, One other thing about that that I'll say in one sentence is this is why the left has stopped talking about class issues, in my opinion. Like, if you listen to a contemporary left-wing speaker, there's a lot about, a whole lot about gender. There's a lot about race still. There's some feminist stuff. But there's never a let's unionize the minds kind of thing. I mean, we've got another Kentuckian on the panel. I mean, there's still jobs in KY, West Virginia today where hundreds of people are killed every couple of years and just If you're talking about death on the job plus effects on the lungs, so on. And there's never, except for Bernie Sanders, I've never really heard anyone on the contemporary left-wing leadership team bring that up. So as you move into power, you kind of gain access to the vices of power and generally enjoy them. And we are seeing that now. And you're going to need, oddly enough, almost an underground resurgence from the other side of sort of normal people.
0: Um, I, I could listen to you for hours. I, I just, I imagine your students very much enjoy class. They um, do. <laughs> overall, yeah. Uh, Rocky, you wanted to add a, a comment about uh, gendering language, and I don't think it's in favor of Latinx. No.
1: Yeah, but it's, uh, we can, I, I don't know how long this would could go. But in German, we of course gender very famously everything as well. We have three genders, of course. And the funny thing is, you were talking about some stuff in Latin and, uh, and, and like Spanish where the gender actually maybe fits uh, the perceived like how it looks like. But police, for instance, in German is a female like word, you know. And if you think about police, it typically would not. And there are a couple of famous examples as well where people are like, what what gender word has that has nothing to do uh, with um what um like gender of people typically uh work like that. And I, I think what uh, in the German speaking realm um now starts happening i mean yes it's academia as well which is pushing this a lot so uh, very much i can agree with what you're saying like that it's the academia which is trying to push this um and uh, in regular people, you typically don't do it um, because it's, it's hard and they have to think about it. And typically gender goes into the direction of making it easier. And so what this, what at least in, in the German speaking area, this showed a lot is that um, this is actually a little bit elitist as well, where it's sort of like changing language in that sort of way uh, creates a gap. Um, like the working class, it oh, then yeah. sounds sounds less educated because they don't know how to gender properly, um, that, that is very especially. Insightful. Yeah, and especially uh, another thing was a uh, gap to dis- people with disabilities as well, especially reading disabilities because you have to sometimes change how the word would look like normally to generate prop quote unquote properly. You know um, that um, and and there's no consistency there as well. So everybody does it however they want. And it's like, it's making reading harder for people who have trouble reading already. It's making talking harder for people who are not like that well-educated and aren't on the up and up of how to do it today, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. So it's, it's very interesting. And Germany and Austria have like, of course, a lot of opportunity to to get into this because, like, yeah, we we gender our, and it's of course very famously hard, um, to to gender in German. But yeah, no, it's it's creating issues, and I think the left is starting to pick up on this, at least uh, around here, that they're actually losing people uh, on this front. And they're like, okay, we're lo- like, we have been the socialist, we have been the working class party, and we're losing our people because they don't understand what we're saying anymore, sure. you know. And and I think especially in Europe, this is why you see this this push to the far right now, because they the the working class does not hear themselves represented anymore with um from their parties, which they typically have historically voted for yeah i think
3: that's
2: that's really insightful and just just briefly i i think a lot of that i think a lot of this stuff as class signaling is whether intentionally or not a problem in america as well and it always reminds me i was reading a book about medieval courtship uh once and the author said that there were all these phrases that people, especially women, would use. One of them was, I have my special perfume behind my ears today, but to indicate that they were willing to sleep with you or go out walking with you or something like that. And if you were not a gentleman, you know, a knight or at least a master merchant or something, you'd have no idea what the hell they were talking about. You know, so these were used to sort of weed out or select worthwhile mates. And I mean, you know, there'd be many more everyday examples like, do you want to go to the mask today, a ball that features certain things? Do you have that equipment? Do you even know what that is? Like, if you don't, well, you're not going, you're not a suitable partner. And I think a lot of this language around in the USA, it might be gender or it might be the different racial gibberish. A lot of that is intentionally operating as a class signifier. Right. So, like, if someone says, an almost exact equivalent of my special perfume would be, like, the different gender identities that imply different sexual tastes. So, like, if someone says, I'm demisexual, what that means, first of all, what that means is just, I'm a normal woman. Like, a demisexual means you have to have a romantic attraction to someone before you want to sleep with them. And one of the most common ways of forming this attraction is going on two to three dates. Like, I'm literally not making up this gender Um, I described that to some of my working class friends, and they were like, that's just being Catholic. Like, what? This is just, this is the most obvious thing in the world. But I mean, nonetheless, though, if someone says, I'm Demi, so be prepared to wait, you would only understand that if you came from a very specific background, if you'd gone to a reasonably good college, if you're familiar with Reddit and Twitter. So there's a huge class element to this. And in the, by the way, there are even little things that are class signifiers that relate to college culture itself, like I was an RA in college, that someone who wasn't from that world wouldn't know, would not understand. So I, I definitely think that that's part of the role of all this, if someone says, well, I'm not going crazy with the gender stuff and the race stuff, but be aware that I am a non-binary demisexual and I might be ace. You know, the average, and that's, like, I would understand what that meant. Like, I'm, you know,
0: kind of a You're girl hip to it. type. You're in the college uh, milieu. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But it means like I'm kind of a girl boss type and I'm not going to sleep with you for a couple of dates like Ace is potentially asexual and so on, and on, no one who's not from that world getting to the point will understand a damn thing you're saying. And that kind of is the point. And in the USA as well, we're seeing this kind of rebellion of the working class where people are saying, you know, Donald Trump, for all his flaws, much less a lot of these heartland politicians, they sound like they're talking about stopping illegal immigration, improving trade. But I mean, you've got the right now talking about boosting union wages or debating with the left on a minimum wage. I mean, so you're much more likely to go with, you know, the guy from the heartland in an ill-fitting but expensive suit who's saying things that might benefit you than the person who's endlessly logic chopping and making you feel stupid. So, I mean, that that is one side effect of the left moving into power the groups that traditionally have been out of power in class terms are going to be less attracted to the left like are you still talking about unionizing minds and workplaces like that or are you now is your focus demi sexual rights because i don't know what that means that's what a lot of people are thinking
0: so it's 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 arist it's aristocratic it's aristocratic code and a signaling to others among that class that you're receptive to engagement, whether that's sexual or business wise or whatever. And it's to isolate everybody else who's not part of your aristocracy. Um, yes. And, and it just, it's disappointing. It's
3: very yeah, And sad. It also,
2: another point is that it changes like all the time. So, I mean, like, the the term to use for black people is one of the funniest examples of this, but I mean, you know, there's always been progression. It was Negro, then it was color, then it was black. But then it rapidly started speeding up to, like, African American, to, like, POC, to BIPOC, to, like, marginalized populations, to, like, racialized populations. All these terms, unless you're in a very Hispanic area, just mean black guy, as all of you know. But, like, unless you are keeping up with this, You are, I mean, it would be considered very offensive to use the term that's three polite terms behind. Like if you said colored people instead of people of color, you could actually be fired.
0: Berkeley Breathed did that back in uh, one of the old Bloom County uh, cartoons where someone actually, you know, an older person from an older generation uses the term colored people thinking of the NAACP. And the yeah, young people are all horrified, you know, and, and it's and I think that keeps coming over. When I first saw someone, you uh, someone on the left using the term brown bodies, I was shocked. I was indignant. If I had said that in the 70s, someone would kick the shit out of me. And now yeah, that's part ta- of seen. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, that's the the uh, the one for me that I still won't say is queer. Like when people are like, "I identify as queer," it's like that's that's an insult. That's something you'd say before a fight if you were that type of jackass. Like, so, but no. The idea is we're going to we're now reclaiming the word. By the way, I, I have to get. I noticed I have to get off the uh, interview base in like a minute or two. I have a class coming up two thirty five. But I mean, so the idea is not that you are. You're not actively improving life for gay people. In fact, most gay people hate being called queers. I mean, think about that. It's not that the average working class gay guy supports this. It's that you are, again, you're doing this status signaling. Like, we know that we're in a space where everyone knows that the term has been reclaimed and where there are enough gay people that it's safe. So we're going to say this edgy, offensive thing to show we're upper class. And it's almost like knowing where to say it, like the person who's aware of this rule in a working class community probably wouldn't describe gay people in this fashion. So it's this time consuming set of linguistic rules that only a few people have the time and money to learn. And that is uh, unfortunate, a little bit irritating.
0: Totally agreed. Will, can we invite you back on the show? I I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate you taking the time and sharing the insight. We're going to put links to the books and and to your Twitter and everywhere else uh, in the show notes. Um, thanks again.
2: Sounds uh, good. I'll see see you guys soon.
3: Have a good day, gents.
0: Thank you. Until next time, I'm Ben Maliseau.
3: Well, I'm Matt Snoddy. I'm Ruffell Fiedler.
0: Catch us again next week for another episode of The Sensuous Sounds of InfoSec.
3: Hey there, listener, Matt here. If you like listening to Ben, Robin, Rofty, Joey, or myself, please consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash securitized. Interested in training for CISSP, CCSP, CISM, SSCP, CCSK, boy, that's a lot of letters, or other InfoSec certifications? Go to Ben's website for all his training programs at com. That's spelled W-A-N-N-A-B-E-A-C-I-S-S-P.com We are on Discord. Engage with us by searching for the channel Wannabeacissp. Feedback or questions on what we discuss Send a good old-fashioned email to ben at benmaliso.com. You may hear a shout-out or your feedback on a future show. We're all working professionals in the infosec industry, so feel free to link up with us on LinkedIn. Support Rofty's company and test-drive their free firewall software called Portmaster. Downloadable at their website, safing.io, spelled S-A-F-I-N-G dot I-O. Support Joey's company, Blue Edge Networks at BlueEdgeNetworks.com and listen to Joey's podcast called Topic of Choice at TopicofChoice.com. Join us on Reddit at slash r slash s s o i underscore fans. All opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and for entertainment purposes only. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our companies, affiliates, employers, guests, or even each other. No advice given here should be followed without consulting with a professional for any specific Infosex situation you may experience.